Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future presented by Georgia Parkin and Charlotte Lorimer. And this week we are joined by David Lorimer who, when I asked how I should introduce him, I honestly didn't know because uh, the way that I have got to know David in my lifetime has changed considerably. But he then showed me his business card, and this is what it says, which I absolutely love, which is inspiring purpose, transforming worldviews, and living your truth. And this, in this episode, we're going to be exploring those things. So welcome. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. So we always start every podcast with yeah. this question, uh, what has this week meant to you? And I think for all of us, it has had a similar theme this week, which mm. is that the Prince of Wales has turned 70. Mm-hmm. And we went to a brilliant event organised by you uh, over the weekend at Canterbury Cathedral. And it was just so inspiring to have all of these people all together. So can you tell us why you wanted to do the event in the first place. And also what's significant to you about the Prince turning 70? Well I, I wanted to put on this event you know, to celebrate his 70th birthday. It's a, it's a landmark um, and he's the only Prince of Wales ever to reach 70. Um, and because I'd written a book about him um, I wanted to highlight the importance of his concept of harmony which is the title of his own book which he published a few years ago. Mm. And I wanted to cover some areas of his work, couldn't cover everything because he's involved in too many things. So I wanted to cover the sacred and architecture, uh, environment um, and ecology, um, agriculture and organic gardening, um, education and healthcare. Yeah, and that's what you did partly in your book, Radical Prince, as well, which I thought was really interesting because obviously, so this was published in 2003 when I was only eight. And I can remember it, but obviously I didn't read can it. Can you really? Can time. you remember? Yeah, of course, because it's really exciting. Yeah. And I remember you, obviously, you had the book launch and you were speaking to lots of people about it. And then my French teacher had read it and said how much he enjoyed it several oh, years goodness. later. Yes. Um, but I thought that this book was going to be more of a biography. And in fact, it's not that at all. And it's very thematic and it goes through all of the areas of work that the prince has done in his lifetime and goes really deep into these issues and why he feels passionate about them. And then lots of really extended quotes from his speeches, which is so interesting because it's almost as if the book is partly written by him because you've included those Indeed. long yes. sections. Yeah. Yeah. And what I wanted to do really was to explain that there was a co- coherent underlying philosophy to all of this, which, which is based on a sense of the sacred and the perennial wisdom. Mm. And, and, the, and so it all what actually hangs together. Perennial? perennial means something that comes back every year. And so a perennial plant is a plant that comes back every year. Okay. So the perennial wisdom is the wisdom of all time. It's not just the wisdom of a particular period. Oh, and I guess significant on a birthday, that's like an anniversary that happens every year or, or something yes. or something to mark. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But I, I, my question, first and foremost, about writing and talking about the, about the Prince of Wales is that I feel like most people, especially our age, just have no concept as to how, how much he's done. Yeah. Or, or how ahead of his time he was. Mm. When I told people this morning that about his speech that he made age 20 about disposable plastics, they couldn't believe it. Yes. Yeah. That was the fact that I yeah. thought, wow, 
age 20, 50 years ago. Yeah, younger than us as well. Yeah. Like you, yeah. He, he was so young. But he, but it's more the fact that it was 20, it was 50 years ago mm. that he was talking about the environment and ecology and what we need to do to look after our planet that long ago. Right at the beginning of the movement. Mm. When you yeah. think of that, was 1968. Mm. And um, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, and it came out in 1962. The first major environmental conferences were in 1970. Wow. Mm. I mean, he has been so ahead of that curve. And I think that what's interesting is that if he had become king, even 10 years ago, I think that the stigma that has been attached to him for so long, because he has been so ahead of the curve in so many ways, now some of the things that he's been talking about for decades are things that we are all interested in, invested in, in a much more broad sense including yeah. young business as well it feels I think. like yes, this I think marks so. the beginning mm. of his time in a way like obviously he's been doing incredible work for such a long time i don't want to take away from that in any means but i feel like it's almost the year 2018 and his 70th birthday it's almost launching him into a new era where a lot of people especially our, our age are thinking actually this is something that he's been passionate about for such a long time yeah and we had a great argument um didn't we on Saturday about the difference between a monarch and someone who is you know elected for a certain amount of time in which that he really has a vested interest in um the country running for a long period of time yeah um and how it's people whereas politicians are literally just worried about getting re-elected in four years or being elected president yes yes whereas prince charles is actually this is a country that i'm going to be part of and a figurehead of my entire life what can i do to you know make it as fulfilling Mm. as possible for everyone i think in his work that is the thing that comes across the most to me Mm. and actually the longevity yeah and i've always been someone who is a supporter of the royal family but i know a lot of people who aren't and i do appreciate that their point of view but actually that's something that's really interesting mm. that i you know if we didn't have the prince of wales then who would yeah. be championing these issues and not get bogged down by the sort of political brexit well, I, re- I read an interesting quote <clears throat> yesterday from gustav Mahler about tradition and he mm. said tradition is tending the flame not worshiping the ashes mm. I thought that was very good because the Prince of Wales talks a lot about tradition and the whole point about tradition is something that's handed on. Mm -hmm. So it has to be living. Mm -hmm. It's not dead. It has to be living. It has to be re-expressed and reborn in every generation. Mm. And I think that it will be interesting to see how the tradition of the Prince of Wales as a role will continue yeah. with the next generation. Exactly. Yeah. And the documentary on the BBC, I think, covered that in a really well, they beautiful asked Prince way. William directly, didn't they? Yeah. That they, I think that William answered it in a really um, insightful way that he said that he has, you know, his father has made this role what it is, but it's now his, it's going to become his role to make it what he wants it to exactly. be. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they're, all, they're already, he and the Duke of Sussex are also already doing this by their interest in mental health, for instance, mm. which is something that they, they, they are now very well known for. Their has to get a campaign. Is I honestly phenomenal. can't mm. even express how amazing that is that someone like Prince Harry and Prince William have made that the forefront of their work. In a you know in a time where that sort of issue has been ignored for such a long time, and for someone of, you know, part of the royal family who is seen to be, you know, quite detached from maybe 
what the what the population feel or think i think that's so powerful that they've mm. done that and actually i think i i couldn't commend them enough for and it. so relevant because so we, relevant. we heard on saturday from rosie daniel that it's one in four people are affected by mental health mm. issues in this yeah. country well yeah i mean we're all we all have brains we all have consciousness and therefore we're constantly on a mental health spectrum and it just you know there are certain individuals that get more affected than others and i think it's really interesting to sort of touch on that and actually for mental health you know um, to me for mental health to be as important as physical health because yes. of course it is and they're also very connected which again links so back connected. to what the prince is involved in um, and it was and really interesting about yeah. integrated med yeah, yeah, medicine yeah. as mm. well yeah, yeah. and hearing Rosie talk about that on Saturday about the Bristol Cancer Clinic was really interesting as well mm -hmm. and it's also a question of, of, of both and of combining the best of the old mm -hmm. with the best of the new yeah. he, he always emphasises this yeah. it's not it's not we're just maintaining the old and ignoring the new it's mm. actually trying to get the best of both and apply it in a practical yeah. way absolutely and i think that that's a philosophy that you're so aligned with with the prince it is you yes. always talk about it doesn't have to be an either or scenario it can be both and and that they can coexist and that they can complement each, each other yes well that hence complementary medicine first figure this week is David Lorimer. The reason that we really wanted to talk to you about the specific work that you have done is that they're almost like what we touched upon with the Prince, there have been so many different areas um, in your lifetime and in your career that you have been involved in. And I think that's really relevant, especially now, talking about how lots of different people, there isn't just this one track career anymore. But I feel like that was the case for you much earlier on. And um, I think for Portfolio Charlotte, career. For Charlotte <laughs> yes. and I, we definitely yes. really resonate with that. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always really struggled with this question, which you get asked a lot, of what do your parents do? Yes. And my mum is fairly easy, chiropractor. Well, now you can ask. And nutritionist. <laughs> and author, I'd say, as well. And for you, I just thought, how, I mean, where do I even start? I'd go, mm. uh, he's a writer, editor, project manager, director of this and <clears throat> this. And he also has done this. It just goes on and on and on and on. It ends mm. up being such a long answer, which is actually far more interesting. But it wasn't uh, as ever a straightforward answer. No, to no. I, 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 <laughs> what do you say if what somebody would you, yes, says, how would you, you define do? yourself? If I'm, if I'm filling in a form... The mm. short version is, say, educational consultant. Okay. <clears throat> because Partly because all the charities I work for, Scientific Medical Network and others I've been president of, you know, like mm. Recon Trust and Swedenborg Society, Character Scotland, um, they're all educational charities. Mm. So education is actually the, the unifying theme uh, in everything, I, uh, everything I've done. And of course you're a teacher as well. Exactly. For yes. how many years? Eight. Okay. So I was in Edinburgh at Fetty's College to begin with, and I taught at Winchester College for six years mm. in, and the, that was in the French, 80s. German, and, and philosophy, philosophy. indeed. Yes. And what, <clears> I didn't, yes. what I didn't realise is that you had, um, before you started teaching, you had gone to France and Germany for a year beforehand, is that correct? Yes. When, yes. I, when I, I left Morgan it. Grenfell, the merchant bank that I yes. was working for, um, I was fortunate enough to be able to go back to Moët et Chandon, the champagne house, and take people around the champagne cellars for a couple of months. Did you know much about champagne before doing that? I, well, my, I, was first, I, I first went to the champagne area in 1971, <clears throat> and so I didn't know much about champagne before 1971, but I knew a lot by 1976, I'm sure. you know, <laughs> I'm which sure is a bit, a bit later. And, 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 and then so, and I took four boxes of books 
no, on that wow. year. And I read them all. So how many books do you think you've read in your lifetime? Oh, okay. so how many? Well, put it this way. <laughs> since, the, since 1996, the database of books on the network book database is about 6,000. Oh my gosh, since 19... And I was working out, I probably, over that period, I've probably written 1,500 long book reviews. And I write 50 a year. <clears throat> and then the short reviews, I write about 150 a year. So how many books are you reading a year? About 200. Oh my god. I would think. Something like that. <laughs> wow. Not all of which, not all of them in, in you know, line by line in detail. And there was a famous remark by the philosopher Schopenhauer in the 19th century, and he said, if only when one bought a book, one could buy the time to read it in. <laughs> but he had no problems then, because there weren't, there weren't many books coming out. But now, oh there are thousands of books coming out, and the computer technology makes it much easier That's to write a book. Audible. We also have Audible yes. as well. Yes. People listen to them, you know, on Then the it commute. used to be. It used to have to type it all out. No, no, electric, no electric typewriter even. My yeah. first book, I typed out on an, on an old hand typewriter wow and how old were you when you wrote your first book i i wrote most of it in 1982 so when i was 30 and how many books have you written in total i've edited about edited and written 15 so i think i've written mm. four and edited about 11 and mm. going slightly back to sort of earlier um than when you were writing your books but like when you're with your early education how did that affect like, how did that shape you into the educator that you were to become? Was education something that you thought when you were at school, did you think that teaching was something that you were going no, to do? No, that was the real last thing I thought I might be doing. I, I mean, like most people, when I, I was 18, so. I didn't know what I wanted mm. to do. Um, it, that only really emerged uh, after I found out that I didn't want to carry on in merchant banking. Mm. And actually, what, I, what happened is I went down to visit a friend, Robert Bogdan, who was teaching at Charterhouse, and he he'd, he'd, uh, he was just in his first term, and I thought, God, this is such a nice life. Yes. Um, you know, teaching and contact with young people and stimulating, and yes. and, and then you get the sports side of things yes, and the music I, and the said, arts and yes. everything like that. And, and, and long music. holidays. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which that, you used to write books. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, so at the time you were at Morgan Grenfell and you realised that that wasn't what you wanted to do, was that the first time that you had really thought about what do you actually want to do? Up until that point, had it really been sort of almost set out for you? Yes, way? I would say so. Yeah. Yes, because, I mean, getting a job in a merchant bank was a prestigious thing to do mm. in those days. Mm. It still is. It still is, yeah. Uh, and uh, I kind of just drifted into it. Um, because I hadn't gotten any, any other ideas of what I should do. Mm -hmm. So you finished Morgan Grenfell and then what Then I went abroad you... for a year, which and, is what we've just been talking about. Yes, and, and I, just, I just wanted to ask, what was that process like in establishing yourself and saying, actually, this is not what I want to do? I well, everything, to do everything I've done since that time has arisen from that year. I can imagine that year, year, really year of reading. It's an absolute seminal year, and having time to think and time to read. Mm. Mm. And and that was pivotal in you deciding actually I don't want to. Well then to no then I what what had happened is I I already um, had a place at Cambridge okay. um, to read for the postgraduate education course that was seventy seven seventy eight. So so before even I went to France in September seventy six mm. that that was already set up. Mm -hmm. So I had something, uh, something to come back come to. Come back to, yeah. Mm. And you walked through France. 
That was a bit earlier on. Um, okay. That was the first time I was in, in 1971. Um, I walked from Epernay to Strasbourg. And I was inspired by the French poet Rimbaud, Arthur Rimbaud. And he said, what you need to do is not aim to go anywhere. You have to partir pour partir, which is to set off just for the sake of setting off. Mm-hmm. And I did have a destination, like I was going to Strasbourg. Um, but, um, and I took practically no- nothing with me. And so mm-hmm. I slept in barns and... I had two evenings in a hotel because I had to clean myself up. Yeah, I remember you telling us this story in Paris, actually. Yes. That's just given me that memory. I remember you Mm. saying, I remember thinking, wow, I must do something like that on my gap here. Oh, it was such an adventure. (laughs) And so you left Winchester. um, Why did you decide to let that go? Well, I I had an opportunity really to kind of work for myself and work independently. And I, 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 the, the, the opportunity that came up was, was for all the Scientific and Medical Network, which is a network, mm-hmm. earliest network of its kind, interested in exploring science, consciousness and spirituality. And, and when I first met George Blaker, who was the, then running it, mm-hmm. um, within 10 minutes of him taking me down to a pub lunch, he said, you're just the kind of person we're looking for to run this organisation. And it took took a, two or three years for it to, all to happen. But as soon as he said that, I, I knew, yes, he's right. That's, what, that's, that's, that's part of my next, part of my path. And so in, in discovering the Scientific and Medical Network, what were your earliest experiences of a connection to um, a certain, either a spirituality, a higher power, a higher purpose? Did that develop in your kind of quest for what do I want to do with my life you know when you're a merchant banker or did it start earlier than that yes probably when I was a merchant banker because Mm. I read a particular book called testimony of light and it referred to what was called effectively kind of soul blueprint um, that if you believe in a perspective which includes reincarnation then you arrive here um, with a certain intent Mm. with with a kind of a blueprint which is not a detailed plan um, but it's a sense of of your mission if you like and I, I felt that, um, I, I asked myself, what kind of person do I want to be when I'm 70? Mm. And immediately the answer came back, not an ex-merchant banker. Yeah. Uh, and so I've always felt my way forward um, in my life uh, with a connection with the blueprint. And when I went back to Eton in you know, 2010, sort of 40 years on after leaving, I was walking across the, um, the schoolyard from the chapel back to where, where we were having drinks reception. And I suddenly got this very strong feeling that the choices I'd made and, and the path I'd followed was, was right, right mm. for me. And it was a very, it was a very beautiful um, feeling of mm. sort of inner and outer connectedness, if you like. I mean, life's only partly about achievement. Yeah. Um, it's also about the person you become. Yeah. And, and the, 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 what you emanate as a person in terms of your qualities. Mm. And for me, what, what's become more and more important um, are, are basically two things. Um, the pursuit of love and wisdom. And, and I learned that very early on by reading Swedenborg, where Swedenborg, who was an 18th century philosopher and scientist, if you look at life in terms not of doing but in being, mm. um, then the really important thing is, is who you become inwardly uh, and how that is expressed outwardly and then what awareness and love and wisdom you bring to your activities. That's it's so comforting to actually hear that just because I think that society now, and it always, ha- I guess there's a certain, to a certain extent it always has been, but it's very achievement-based. 
the school system sets you up for that and then as soon as you leave school it's the next achievement the next achievement the next salary this this where you live who you're you know whatever and I, and I think people lose sight of that a lot of who you want to be and I feel like I've for many years been constantly going back and forth into this element of spirituality that I feel very connected to and then also feeling that pressure of oh but I need to fill a certain expectation um and I love that you're talking about achievement in terms of values which you've always emphasized and mm. which is the foundation of your education poster competition which we've spoken about on the podcast before um and which I did when I was uh 10 something like that something like yeah, that a bit older i think maybe i 11. did it twice though yes oh, you did but, you're right but one yes. of my favorite things about that and it can be for any age is that you have a list of different values like love kindness courage determination perseverance and you have to think about which ones mean the most to you and how you would live out those values and who inspires you that lives those values and it's all about achieving to be, you know, kindness as an achievement. And I think that's a much more whole way of looking at somebody's life rather than looking at their CV and thinking, well, they've done this, 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 mm -hmm. and they've earned this amount of money and they live in this house. There's so much more to it than that. Well, we asked people uh, on the third part of the, the poster template, what kind of person do you want to be? And that reflects back to the, the, the first part, which we've, we've now changed it slightly. We used to be have the question, what, what do you think is the most important among these various qualities? Now we have two columns. One says, what, do you want, what, what are you good at? What do you, what, which of these qualities are you best at or best characterizes you? And then also, what do you need to work on? Mm. And what's quite striking when one's judging these posters is how honest young people are about their, their uh, shortcomings. They're just amazing. Young people and, are just so and inspiring they, to work with because they're so, there's just no, um, I guess, they don't worry about judgment from other people or judgment of themselves. They just say how they feel about them, you know, about things they need to improve on or things they enjoy. There's no, they don't tend to go into this sort of politics of, what I need, what I feel I need to achieve in order to, to go to a certain place. I, I find that really refreshing. The that do your poster competition is... 10 to 15. Mm. Okay. And so it's, it's, it's the time when people are beginning to define themselves. Mm. Really important. And, and the, the, two, the tension is, is standing out and fitting in. Yeah. Because you actually want to do both. You obviously want to fit in with your friends. You want to stand mm. out as a person in your own right. Today's figure is connected with world population. And I was on the internet at lunchtime today and the figure I read was 7,664,755,930. Now if you go back to um, the date I was born, which is the 20th of May 1952, the figure was, let's just do round figures, 2.55 billion. As so the global population. Global population, which means it's gone up by a factor of three um, since that time, which is pretty staggering. Now, we're just bringing in um, the Charlotte and Georgia birth dates. Uh, uh, Georgia really was born dates, <coughs> yes, um, um, on the 17th of um, <laughs> August, 1995. The 17th of August, you want to send her a birthday card. Um, and that date there was, figure there was 5 Point six seven eight billion, and and then by the sixth of October, when Charlotte was born, it had gone up to five 
billion six hundred and eighty nine million or nearly six hundred and ninety million, which is an increase of eleven point five million in about a six week period. That is absolutely crazy. I can't even And that means um, that the average increase in population, which is births minus deaths, every day in that period was 229,800 per day. Um, Now, I'm just going to give you a couple of figures from um, this year, from the same source. The net increase in population this year is nearly 73 million, and that equates to 225,700 increase per day. So there's a slight decrease, but not very much. Um, and that means that the increase of population um, is 9,400 odds an hour. Whoa. If you, if you, in other words, if you um, divide 225,703 mm. by 24. So it gives you an idea of and the, the population of increase. And it also means that the only day in living memory when the population went down was the 26th of December 2004 with the tsunami when 230,000 people were killed. And so that was a net decrease of about nothing, 1,000. Those figures. I didn't realise that many fatalities happened either either on that day. No, I didn't realise it was that high. That's so many fatalities. Why has that been a particular interest of yours or why has that the global population been... Well, it, 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 it was part of the research I did for a book I wrote with uh, Jason Drew, which came out in 2011, called The Protein Crunch. And so we had, we had chapters on a number of things, on land, uh, on, on oceans, uh, on population, on meat production. Mm. And, and so we were looking at, the, at, at various aspects of this, really the future of food. And in, the reason it's called The Protein Crunch um, is that the huge increase in middle classes, um, <clears throat> especially in China and India, um, you know, by 2030, there's enormous, several hundred million more people of middle class, and they want to eat more protein, more fish, more meat, and that has more and more impact on 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 the environment through you know, deforestation for soya, um, and the, 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 the huge number of pigs, for instance, in mm. China, mm. 500 million pigs in China. Yeah, and I think the important thing to say is that we're not saying that we shouldn't have more people becoming wealthier and more no. people becoming more middle class. The, the point is that we need to rethink how we structure our food industry because we it's brand not protein. sustainable. Because it's kind all. of ridiculous. We have been fed this, and it's partly due to the 90s dieting industry in that we need to have a lot of protein and there's whole Atkins in the sense that if you want to be slim you need to have a lot of protein and it's been we've kind of been fed that we need to no pun intended um that we <laughs> that we need to be eating a lot of protein to be lean and to be healthy and actually I think that on the health spectrum and also the environment spectrum that's actually really detrimental to and also that you can get protein from vegetables yeah, but we don't talk about that ever yeah, but it needs yeah. to be become part of a conversation. That's... And it's not healthy to eat too much to eat too much meat. And so, mm. do you remember the figure from Saturday, which I think was that if we cut our meat consumption by forty percent, yeah. then an area the size twice the size of India would yeah. become available for yeah. further cultivation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or if because yeah. so much of so much of cereal is is um, fed to to livestock, and so much water goes into meat production. Yeah. Indeed, and these are horrific conditions as well for the animals. I know that some all the time the moral or the ethical implications aren't necessarily 
I don't know, it depends on the individual, but this is, it's not like we're thinking of of land where there's just happy cows and chickens running around in a green pasture. A lot of the time, this is extreme factory farming where, you know, some of these animals don't even see the light of day. Concentrated animal feed operations. They're pumped animal feed for sort of a third of their lifespan, like a third of what their lifespan would be, and then killed for meat. Um, And that can't even be healthy to consume anyway. it isn't it isn't it's much healthier to i mean if you aren't a vegetarian it's much healthier to, to eat grass-fed beef than it is yeah. beef that's being but raised in these operations grass-fed for the whole population to eat meat you know once a day or twice a day no you know we, we need to, it needs Don't to be a serious that you know one of the arguments that the japanese population live for such a long time is their traditional diet has been mainly um veg rice obviously a bit of fish but actually and fermented food which and, is also and, fermented and also food. in china the also, traditional chinese exactly diet, but also the, the way what they use the meat for was actually just flavor and they use a very very small amount of it um and now you can see what in this, a lot of the chinese population what this sort of western diet and this sort of american fast food that's been brought over there has actually well you get the, the, the diseases of civilization make make an entry onto the scene as people change their diet, and, have and, more and you can meat, just see it happening. Processed meat, yeah. And I think one of the, uh, with respect to population, the other important factor um, is obviously numbers is one factor, but resource mm. consumption is the other. Mm. So, for instance, um, you know we're already using up 1.6 planets um, a year overall in terms of natural renewable resources. And but <clears throat> one American is equivalent to 40 Africans in terms of the amount of resources that they produce. And so if you're looking at sort of absolute numbers, you might think that there's a terrible problem in Africa, which indeed there is. Um, but then when you consider that ratio of 1 to 40, that, that you have there's to have... There's also a problem in America that we need to yes. talk about as well. Which part yes. of Afri- is that part of Africa specifically, or is it just the continent well, of Africa? Or... It is. The, 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 most of the population increase up until 2050... Um, is is going to take place in Africa, uh, and these are this is this is a place where 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 they already have very large numbers of people living in slums, uh, and the slum population was I think ten years ago about one billion. By 2040, it's going to be two billion, mm-hmm. and you've got urbanisation. So, for instance, 500,000 people move into Delhi every year, mm-hmm. and 80% of those move in, move into slums. Wow. Oh so it's it's a, it and of course the 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 um the crowded conditions mean that expose them to all sorts of health hazards yeah Uh, and then there's no sanitation either particularly in Mm, india absolutely but this is i think where we can connect the work that you've done in education with your interest in global population because the more education we have that has a positive impact on global population yeah education in women yeah and particularly and and also and also men because um if you think about some of this, you know, a lot of the societies in certain parts of Africa, um, particularly the ones that Charles and I have been most educated in recently is probably Sierra Leone, in that, you know, 80% of women there have undergone FGM. The thought of, mm. you know, the way that men view women there is very just disposable. Um, and, you know, we can educate the women there a lot considerably, and that would be great. Mm. We also need to educate men to not think of the women in a certain way or not treat them in a certain way, and they are treated very much so as second-class citizens. citizens. Mm. Um, and there's, and I think that's also a big issue 
in many countries in Africa, mm. actually. And, they're very, and it's very behind what we would have yeah. in and in, the UK. in Muslim countries as well. And, yeah. in, Mus- and yeah. in Muslim countries. Mm. And, and a large part mm. of Sierra Leone is Muslim. Um, and I'm citing Sierra Leone as an example, but that's actually the case across a lot of Africa. Mm. Um, and I think it, and I don't know how we change that perception on such a massive scale because it's really built into their society and how they've you know in the terms of their religion how they've been brought up to think mm. um i think that would also make a, a big big difference in yeah. yes. the population. because the more educated a woman is the fewer children they want to have and then the more chance that, that, that they'll actually have access to you know, mm. to contraception yeah which and be is able something to make a choice. i wanted to bring mm. into this conversation because in 2014 i went to the st andrews prize which you were a judge i was a of. trustee yes yeah um, which is a brilliant educational prize that is given to one project um, every year. And the one that won was called Blue Ventures. It was set up by uh, a man called... Vic Mohan. He's oh, a doctor. Yeah. yeah. And he uh, did a project in Madagascar where he provided contraception to the women who wanted it in Madagascar and saw a significant decline in the number of pregnancies and number of children which therefore had an impact on the number of mouths to feed and the fishing population and the the knock-on effect within this community was just vast Mm -hmm. and it wasn't preachy and it wasn't forcing anybody it was simple education and then access to very simple contraception which had an enormous impact contraception was it do you know i think it was the pill and condoms? I don't I can't remember the, I don't the think details. That, I don't yeah. think, and especially in a lot of countries in Africa, condoms mm. would be really important because obviously there's a lot of STIs as S- well. Yeah. Mm. Which which also is a factor as you know, yeah. come into it. So the, 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 I think the point is that it was a, a systemic award in, in that it was something that had a had a an effect on uh, on the men, the women, mm. uh, and the fish. Yeah. And, the fish, and yeah. so the fish were not being unsustainably fished. And therefore, mm. there were going to be more of them. They get a chance to regenerate, and they can continue mm. to eat them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the principle of St. Andrew's Prize is that the, the idea has to be spreadable and scalable. And so it's an example that, that, can, that can be reproduced elsewhere. It's just about giving people mm. the choice. Mm. And Absolutely. I think we completely take it for granted in Western countries that we do have that available to us all the time. It's mm. just there. Would you say that in Western, in even in our society now, in Western countries, that we should be mindful of how many children we have? Well, the thing is that in, in, in sort of advanced European countries, we, in a sense, we have the opposite problem because the, the replacement um, number of children, or the, the figure that replaces the population um, for, for women is 2.1. And, and Italy and Germany, for instance, are down at about 1.5. And so it means that the, that the indigenous populations um, in some European countries are actually going down. So an example here would be, would be Russia, um, which is losing population. And so, is it Japan um, as well? Yes. Um, but the, I have the Russian figure here, which is 142 million in 2010, going down to 103 million by 2050. And then on the other hand, you have Yemen, where there's a terrible war going on mm. at the moment, which is in a whole other area. 1950, the population was 5 million. Um, 2010, it was 23 million. And by 2050, it's projected to be 103 million, which I find 
just almost impossible. I can't see how that's I going to happen. I can't get my head around these numbers. I can't get my head around, around at all. So it's kind of exponential mm. and, uh, at a time when they already haven't got enough food or water. Mm. So the, there has to be a buffer but, somewhere. But I guess lack of resource, lack of education. Mm. I guess mm. more affluent, well, in civil war as well. Are going you know? to have that access yeah. to contraception that those countries mm. don't. So in terms of ending on practical notes of what can individuals do to address this issue, access to contraception, thinking about the food that you eat, mm. what else would you add? Well, I, I think it's also uh, awareness raising because you know, most people do not know that the population is increasing by 225,000 no. a day. I love that we've highlighted that stat um, specifically and, and the, today. It's, it's extremely difficult. It's so difficult to tackle that most people just avoid the subject. Yeah. Um, mm. but, but we do need you know, multilateral UN type initiatives which are really thought through and 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 which enable us to to reach to, to plateau more more quickly because at the moment we're going to plateau certainly at 9.5 billion some maybe more before the world population gradually starts going down but that means we've got another we've got another and they're almost 50% population or certainly 40% population more than we got at the moment when we're already um, you know, using up 1.6 planets. Yeah. We're drawing down the capital, in other words. Can I ask you my favourite question? One of my favourite <laughs> yeah. questions. Which is, um, if, every <laughs> if everyone became a vegetarian, would that make a significant difference in the resources that we're using? Yes, absolutely. Um, we could... Uh, <laughs> I think this is probably as of 2010, um, we could... Could have fed quite easily nine billion people, mm-hmm. and, and of course there's the, the whole business yes. of food waste, which I, I think you talked about before. Want to make that in a t-shirt? Before. Still to this day, people still question me a lot about it, and I want to just present that fact of actually, and and, and a lot of people will challenge and say actually it's about food distribution. That's also true. I and mean, that... we, the but with the other the other interesting statistic is is that we now have um, more people who are overweight than who are starving. And that's been the case for about 10 years. And that's another argument for having a more plant-based diet, is actually mm. it's, it's going to make you so much more healthier in the long run and actually your weight won't become much of an issue if you're not putting so many chemicals and processed food in your body. Well, the whole food industry, you should probably have a separate... Oh, my God. <laughs> and then that. it's all corn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the third figure that we're going to be talking about today is the orbit of the planet Venus as seen from the Earth, which creates an absolutely stunning pattern which conforms to the golden ratio, which we have mm-hmm. talked about in the, in this podcast previously. Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know what the golden ratio is, this can be created by dividing the num- a number in the Fibonacci sequence by a bigger number by the previous number. Mm-hmm. And then I need to explain the Fibonacci sequence, which is 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, and so on. So you add the two previous numbers to create the next number in the sequence. Mm -hmm. And this sequence, these numbers, this ratio is found throughout nature and in human proportions and in sunflowers and in the stars and everything. And this gives me such a comfort that I feel that there is a... an amazing underlying order and geometry, which I think is what geometry is all about. Yes, really. indeed. Mm. I mean, it's literally the measure of the earth, geometry. Mm. 
Which we learned about over the weekend. Which from... we did. And I was struck by the phrase um, the Plato talking about geometry as the ever true. Mm. Yeah. Um, because all the proportions that you, you see, they, they, are, they, are, they, may be, they have different sizes, but all the proportions are always the same and in the same relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that what was so interesting about Keith Critchlow's presentation, he's the author of several books and my favourite one, which is The Geometry of Flowers, uh, which inspired one of my art projects. He was talking about how it's so important to draw geometry and that you you shouldn't be learning about the Fibonacci sequence in maths and then going off to art and doing something completely different, that we need to have a more joined up education, which is exactly what... Richard Dunn Dunn was was talking talking about about, who is the most extraordinary headmaster and I wish I had assemblies from him every day (laughs) well coming back to the um, the, the, this Venus orbit the the main pattern is five and we can we can invite um, listeners to 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 cut an apple the the wrong way as it were straight across and then if you do that if you don't know this already you'll find there's a pattern of five there's a five point to start um, which which, which, you, which you then used in in one of your sculptures yeah and and what what is the venus orbit for anyone who doesn't know what that means so this is the way that the planet venus is moving around and the way moving that... around the sun or moving well in its moving orbit. around the sun but the thing is that the as seen from earth it it it, it goes forwards and backwards so there's a there's a, a mo- motion forwards, and there's what they call a retrograde motion, which is the re- created by the relative position of the Earth uh, to, the, to Venus. And the fact that Venus goes around the sun in 225 days, and we take 365. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that itself creates, creates this, this pattern, which I, I was discovered quite a long time ago, yeah. I think. But I also want to relate this to, to flowers, um, because in, in that book, uh, Keith Critchlow, The Hidden Geometry of Flowers. It makes you look at flowers very, very carefully in future. So you can go, you go around the countryside and you say, oh, that's a six. It's a daffodil, it's a six. The other ones are fives or fours or threes or twos. And then you, then you, you begin to appreciate um, the exquisite unfolding of pattern um, in, in, in all these common flowers. Mm, absolutely. And then you can recognise it and see it in other areas of nature as well such as the stars and i think this joining up of the microcosm with the macrocosm absolutely is so beautiful and so awe-inspiring and that's what he covers really beautifully and, and also leads me on to another question again just playing just playing devil's advocate i i i or devil's avocado yes um and fun fact i yeah. nearly bought a pair of shoes that had uh an avocado on one shoe and a piece of toast on the other. That's a very long yeah. story. <laughs> but I nearly did. Anyway, um, but what I wanted to ask was, um, I recently have been interested in the study of astrology and the study of stars and the patterns the stars make and my star sign, my moon sign, my rising sign, all of those sorts of things. And just touching on what you said about the about joining the t- those two concepts... Why is it important that we look at how Venus orbits or any of the other planets, for example, and why does it affect what we do on Earth? Well, I think that astronomy, which is what we're talking about yes. with Venus, and astrology mm-hmm. are quite separate disciplines. How are they so separate? Many well, they minds. weren't at one point. But today no, they're quite they're, Today different. they're very separate. And, mm-hmm. and they're, but they're, is that an overall issue with science and spiritual and 
kind of that's the whole point of the scientific and medical network isn't it to, to actually actually science is not just material we actually need to look at the things that we yes can't we do touch. have experts on astrology in the network mm. and I, I think i think one of the interesting connections is, is with jung and 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 the, the the sort of psychological typology that you can maybe read into into the zodiac um, which is in some ways independent of, of whether or the extent to which the, um, astrology is true or indeed how you would measure it um, but it's, it has to do with the earlier part of our conversation about the relationship between the inner and the outer mm-hmm. uh, and so when you, when you have an, uh, an understanding there's an inner universe and an outer universe then you naturally start asking yourself well how do these things relate and that's really where where astrology comes in and you also have Richard Tarnas's archetypal astrology which is not the personal astrology that you read in in the newspapers mm. but these much larger patterns and historical patterns that maybe repeat themselves at different times like times of revolution yes mm. and you can see whether whether times of particular ferment and revolution and mm. um, had 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 similar um, constellations within the heavens Mm. And then you can do a kind of comparative analysis. Again, it's difficult to be very rigorous in that respect, but it stimulates thought. Definitely. And I think for me, astrology and finding about about my, my sun sign, which is Libra, my moon sign, which is Pisces, and my rising sign, which is Virgo. If you don't know any of these and you're interested to find out, we'll link... Um, a website where you can do this it depends on where you're born and what time you're born Mm. so I could have the same birthday as somebody but I won't have the same necessarily all three different signs and there's Mm. so many different signs Mm. and I think it's the way that they join together and interconnect they just help me to understand different parts of myself and also how I relate to other people which I find really interesting and I tend to get on really well with Leos as their sun sign so Georgia, my other great friend Mary, my godmother Sarah. I mean, I can go on and on. There's so many people. I didn't even realise that there, you'd had a moon sign or a rising sign. I found that both mine are Taurus, which is really weird. So I have Leo as my sun sign, Taurus as my moon sign, and Taurus as mm-hmm. my rising. Mm-hmm. And then my, and then when we did Mars and Venus, so like how I express myself in my male, or as a male capacity, capacity is Leo. And how I express my female is Libra, which really makes sense. Because loads of your really good friends are also Libra. A lot of people who I'm very close to are mm. Libra. Well, yeah. there's, there's another aspect we bring in here, which is that we're consulting the oracle, or an oracle. And then the, the main Chinese oracle is called the I Ching. And it has 64 hexagrams, which are combinations of six um, broken lines or continuous lines. Um, and I've, I have some experience of... <clears throat> of uh, consulting this and that was, I followed Jung who was one of the first people to write about this and he, he worked with a man called Richard Wilhelm um, who was a Chinese scholar and, and um, when, you, when you consult the I Ching and you get an answer then it's almost like a thought experiment um, in that it stimulates a certain line of thinking and, and of course if you'd had a different answer it would stimulate a different line of thinking mm. and so I see it also as a way as a, simply a sort of outside perspective or stimulus that can help you think about something that needs thinking about, which you, you're not sure how to proceed. And that then just helps the whole process move forward. 
Yeah. So it was a very practical yeah. aspect. I think it introduces new ideas. And I yes. think that when people say, talk about astrology or horoscopes, they immediately think of yeah. the magazines which will tell you what your next month is going to be like. Yes. And that's not what it's about not for at me all. at no. all. No. It's about the way that you can join up different parts of yourself. Somebody can say something and then you think, oh, okay, that makes me think about this in a different way. Or... I get on really well with this person and how does that open us up to new different relationships and it's those um, parts that you can't put down for everybody. You can't be generic with astrology in that same way and that's what I find really interesting. It could trigger a, an alternative thought process. Yeah, Especially definitely. if you're questioning something or there's a turning point in your life where you're not really sure, almost like... A, you know your own personal revolution as it were um if you're not really you know and that's a good thing to sort of maybe but look also upon. what's happening in the world because i remember us i both... wonder what the star constellation was when trump <laughs> yeah, I'm sure many people have done, done, I'm sure done Trump's, have, yeah. Trump's you know, charts. The yeah. interesting that we discovered was that um, I think it was Scorpio, which has kind of sexual connotations Bl- dark and a darkness yeah, to very it. Very dark. That there was a shift in Jupiter in November of last year. Mm. And this was exactly when all of the Harvey Weinstein allegations came out. There's been a real opening up of that conversation mm. of all of these awful things that have been happening for years. And there has felt like a oh, shift yeah. from that. And when people look at the the bigger star signs and the bigger movements of the planet, because Jupiter is obviously a huge planet, which has... Mm-hmm. Um, a much longer cycle which means that it doesn't change its sign that often and so when it does it's quite a significant moment and that I find fascinating as well and how you can line up different movements of the planets and the stars with new movements of your life or society and all of that and looking at how they all connect well, over the summer, you might have, uh, have realised that we had Mars, Jupiter and Venus all in the sky at the same time. Oh, I didn't see that. They, 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 first, Mars is the only one still left. The, the others are not visible at the moment. Mm. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Figure Podcast. As always, we love to hear your comments and questions. So please contact us at thefigurepodcast at gmail.com. And remember that you can find us on Instagram to look at all the images associated with today's figures. And that's at Figure Podcast, and it's the same on Twitter. Um, the Twitter has been amazing, courtesy of Shah, the last two weeks. Please go check it out. Um, and you can find David at inspiringpurpose.org.uk or at davidlorimer.co.uk or at the Scientific and Medical Network. And their website is scimednet.org. We're going to leave all of those links in the episode description. You can also find him on LinkedIn and on Facebook as well, if you would like to get in contact. And until next week. Until next week. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thank you you very much. I really enjoyed it. Bye-bye.